The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing. For the reading of God's Word, we make our way now to the second chapter of Romans, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. There's a couple of very key statements in this text. Listen to them carefully as I read it. God's infallible, inerrant word to be read in your hearing. Now, speaking of the power of biblical Christianity in the gospel, let's take a look at chapter 2 and verses 1 through 5. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, well, there's a key word. You have no excuse. You may have heard that before. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you in repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever by his grace. And by his mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Harry, I think I know a question that some of you may be asking. Um, Harry, we have now for three Sundays, we were in Romans 1, 18 through 32, where the wrath of God is revealed and the declaration of our condemnation for all who are apart from Christ. Well, it seems like it's continuing in chapter 2. Is it possible that you could just give us a executive summary and a bottom line, a distillation? <laughs> well, I can't because Paul didn't. Uh, Paul didn't do that, and there's a reason why Paul didn't do that. Now, Paul actually is going to cut to the chase. Paul actually is going to give the bottom line. It's in Romans 3.23 where he says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's his summation. That's his executive summary. That's his distillation of what he's given you. But he doesn't just give you that, and there's a reason why. The reason why is not only are we under condemnation because of our sin, unless we come to Christ for forgiveness and redemption, but we are controlled by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me be even more precise. We may even agree that God judges sinners. 
And that sin is worthy of God's judgment. Yet deceive ourselves into thinking we get an excuse. We're exceptional. We're the exception. We get a get-out-of-jail-free card. We can pass go and collect $200. That somehow we deceive ourselves. It is amazing the deceptiveness of sin. So Paul is taking the time to bring every segment of humanity in front of the bar of God's justice and at the foot of Christ's judgment seat. And every segment is to hear no excuse, indicted, guilty, helpless, hopeless. Now, why is he doing that? Well, maybe I can tell you why he's doing that by telling you why he's not doing that. Why, why uh, this isn't what he wants to do or what he directly is, is focused upon. Let me try to put it this way. Paul has a mission. And that mission is the salvation of sinners. That's his mission. Well, Harry, why is he spending so much time on the condemnation of sinners? He has a mission, the salvation of sinners. And he has a message. It's called a good news message. It's called a, um, if we were doing it in German, Gutspiel. If we were doing it in Old English, good spell. But in our language, with our good old southern uh, contractions taking place, just gospel. That's what it is. It's a glorious good news message. But the good news message can never be a good news message if the bad news is not declared in the message. You will never see grace as amazing. You'll never see grace as grace. You'll never see grace as amazing. You will never be astonished by it. You'll never be motivated, motivated by it until you understand the bad news. In other words, Paul has said, I want to get there to preach the gospel of God. Gospel of God because it's the gospel of God. See, this word therefore means everything you're about to hear is tied to what he has just said to us in the opening chapter. I want to come. I'm eager. I want to get there to you, but I can't. God has said no. Therefore, if I can't get there to, to preach the gospel, I'm going to write the gospel to you. I'm going to explain to you the gospel. And when I get there, I want you to know I'm eager and unashamed to preach the gospel. This grace of God revealed from heaven through the Son of God by saving sinners by the grace of God to the glory of God. That's the glorious thing revealed in the gospel of God. And then he turns. But the wrath of God is revealed. Not will be revealed. Yes, it will be. That's called the day of judgment. On that day, the wrath of God is unmeasured, irrevocable, eternal. But there is now the wrath of God. He said, now the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. What is it that's causing God's present 
measured wrath of God upon this world. What is happening, the reason it's there, he says in Romans 1.18, is because man will not honor God and worship him. That's why he made you, was to honor him and worship you. But man will not honor him and worship him, but will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In unrighteousness. Do you get that? The problem is not an intellectual problem. The problem is a moral problem. The problem is a heart problem. Here's what he says. The heart is darkened. And when man suppresses the truth, he doesn't give up thinking and worshiping. He now is disposed by the wrath of God to futile thinking. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And is consigned to the emptiness of idolatry. God made you in his image. You think and you're made to worship him. And when you suppress the truth, which by the way, you can't hold down. Remember, my example is like the boogie board that you try to put down in the pool. You're not going to keep it down. It's going to come back. It's going to pop up. And, and And this whole dynamic of the truth popping back up will expose from time to time how futile our thinking is and how insane it is and how empty our worship is it's idolatry we worship hobbies we worship our job we worship a spouse we worship a family we worship sports we do all of those things things that are good in and of themselves if we're using them for God's glory but when we put them in the place of God and worship and we put God's worship on the back burner or whenever it's convenient then they become empty and destructive in our lives And so he breaks that point, and then he brings a whole category of people in front of the bar of justice in Romans 1, verses 23 through 32. He brings the Gentile pagans. These who say, oh, I got an excuse. I have an excuse. I don't have enough information. I don't have a Bible. I don't have enough information. I don't have a preacher. I don't have enough information. He says, oh, no. You are without excuse because what can be known about me, my divine power and invisible attributes, you live in the theater of my glory and majesty. You live in a cycloramic IMAX where surround sound, where day after day the speech pours forward. You've seen my fingerprint. You're seeing my handprint. You're seeing my footprints everywhere. But you suppress the truth and unrighteousness and you exchange the glory of God for the emptiness of worshiping that which is created. So I'll give you over. The sacrament of sin is sexual anarchy. I'll give you over to sexual promiscuity taking God-given natural appetites and turning them in to the insanity of lust with pornography and fornication and adultery, thinking that's where my happiness and joy, I'll give myself to this. That's the ultimate statement of rebellion against God. And you would think with the emptiness of that that people would say, well, let's repent. No, no. No, the pagan says double down. 
Not only will they deny the glory of, not only will they exchange the glory of God for the emptiness of idolatry, they'll exchange the truth of God for the lie. And the foolish heart is dark and professing to be wise, they become fool and they embrace the sophisticated intellectual journey into imbecility. And the the exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And God says, I'll bring you back to your sacrament. The sacrament of rebellion and darkness and sin. Sexual anarchy not only has sexual promiscuity, it'll take it to another level of sexual perversion. Whereby you go from natural appetites into the absurdity of lust and emptiness and idolatry. Now to unnatural Lust, unnatural desires, men with men and women with women, even though you get the due penalty in your bodies and the brokenness that comes from it. And you would think that would bring to repentance, but no. Then it's not enough to embrace rebellion against God and display it in sexual anarchy of promiscuity and perversity, but now... We recruit others into a culture of insanity and absurdity. And we declare our sin as good. We give approval. Not only do we practice such things knowing they deserve the judgment of God, we approve them and bring others into it with us. We recruit others and approve the sin and call light, darkness, darkness, light, evil, good, good, evil, and call sin righteousness. But no matter how much you create, codify sin as a right, sin will never be right. It always has its consequences. And so he has then shown no excuse You've got the information surrounding you. And the wrath of God measured keeps calling to you to repentance. But instead, you, with the darkness of heart, you descend further into this death spiral of a culture of insanity, absurdity, imbecility, and immorality. And call it good. And convince others to join you in this religion of rebellion. But not all Gentiles are pagans. Some have got religion. And so now he turns to a second category. By the way, we got other categories coming at the end, at the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3. But now he turns to a second category. And here's the one I have concerns. And I'd ask for you to listen to me carefully. This is not a concern of accusation. It's a concern of... Um, of my own just heart and soul. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus preaches on the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom and the life of those who follow the gospel of the kingdom, when he finishes it, he takes people to the day of judgment. And he says, on that day, now listen to me, many will say to me, many, not a few, not some isolated examples, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, good theology language. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And then on that day, I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew 
you. They had brought to the judgment seat the hope of their religion and its activity. And not Jesus, my one defense, his righteousness. They brought the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see the pagan Gentile believes when sin's emptiness and the wrath of God giving him over comes, the answer is more sin, more depraved sin, from a futile mind to a debased mind. My problem isn't sin. My problem is I'm not sinning enough. I'm not sinning absurd enough. I'm not sinning depraved enough. But the religion, the religious, the self-righteous religionist, and this is my concern, Now, why? Because I am a preacher of the gospel. I'm like Paul. I'm on a mission. And I'm on a message. But I can't preach the good news unless I make clear your need of the good news by communicating clearly the bad news. And the bad news is we're all under indictment. But preacher, I I, I tithe. Preacher, I give. give. Preacher, I... Wait, 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 folks. Do you remember what Jesus said at the temple... There was the Pharisees who prayed, and he says, he says, I thank thee, Father, that I tithe, I do this. He names it all out, and I'm not like that guy over there. He condemns him while exalting himself, putting his trust in his condemnation of the, of the uh, publican, while he puts his trust not only in his condemnation of the publican, but his exaltation in his own righteousness. And Jesus said, you know which one went down? It's the one over here that saw his sin with confession and contrition. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You, God, are my only plea, my only defense. You alone. The deceitfulness of sin not only leads people to thinking we just need to sin more, it can also lead people to thinking my religion will deliver me. It will be my pass on the day of judgment. This is my signed excuse card. I see Jesus, I condemn people that you condemn. Now, what about this self-righteous religionist? Why is it so heavy on my heart? Well, I basically preach to a lot of Gentiles. (laughs) And while Romans 1 is a mirror of my culture, because my culture politically, economically, socially, and spiritually is descending back into a neo-paganism. And we're calling good evil and evil good. As we destroy life, gender, marriage, sexuality, and everything in the name of self-exaltation. But the people that are in this culture that I minister to are those that I have access to. Don't fit the profile directly of the pagan Gentile, but some of us can fit the profile of the Gentile self-righteous religionist. And that's who is in the focus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul is doing something. I'm going to tell you what it is, and you're going to think, how can Paul do that? Do you know what Paul is doing in, in Romans 2, verses 1 through 5? He is, he is engaging in a diatribe. Now, I know, a what? A diatribe? That's terrible. We don't do diatribes. We're Christians. Well, diatribe is not a bad word. Diatribe is an, is a literary device in which an author, to get a point across, sets up an imaginary debate with a fictional character who takes the position that he wants to show is a wrong position. So he presents the position with that person and then begins to dismantle it step by step by step. That's a diatribe. So what he is doing is he just finished preaching a sermon back in Romans chapter 1. And as he finished that sermon, he has now presented a man that was a many. God, they exchanged the glory of God for the emptiness and God gave them over to sexual promiscuity from the corner. Amen. And then they, and then God, when they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, God gave them over to sexual per, uh, perversion and he's going to bring judgment on them. Amen. That's the man he's amening. I, I experienced this one time when I, I was a student pastor and I was, I would get the privilege to preach that, uh, that, um, during that time and, and I began to read and, you know, some of my, uh, fellow, uh, some of my models and mentors in life said, you know, people don't preach enough on the bad news so people appreciate the good news and they don't let people know about the hell to flee, the wrath to come of the hell of Gehenna. They just don't do it. You must do it. So I decide, okay, I must do it and I will do it. I have to tell you, I was intimidated by it. I made sure everybody knew that Jesus talked about it more than anybody else in the Bible. And uh, so it's okay for me to talk about it. In fact, maybe I ought to talk about it. But I, I remember being overwhelmed with emotion. But I also remember something. Every time I said, and those who do not repent are going to spend eternity in hell. And my heart was literally breaking when I would say that because it just overwhelmed me. I had friends and family that were on my mind when I was saying that. But I also remember a guy over to my right kept saying, every time I said that they will spend eternity in hell, I'd hear this, Amen! Amen! And I went home and I thought about it because it just didn't set right with me. There was a jagged edge to it. And then I tried to logically work through it. Now, amen means that's the truth. So be it, truly, truly. So technically, the amen belonged there. But it seemed to me it ought not to be a amen. It might ought to be a amen. With the realization, except for God's grace, that's my destination. And I want them to be saved. You see, Paul has a mission of salvation and a message of salvation. But you can't, listen to me carefully. I'm going to use another current phrase. Take it out of the political realm, please. But I'm going to use it because I know you've heard it. Paul is trying to get across anybody who comes to you with the good news that you are saved, but doesn't communicate the bad news. You can't save yourself You're under an indictment. You're helpless and you're hopeless. Any good news from a man-made religion is not good news. It's fake news. 
It's a wrong hope. Here are religious people who have a misplaced hope through the deceitfulness of sin. The pagan not only sins and approves the sin and recruits other to it. This is the religionist who condemns the sin and condemns others who sin, but does the sin and acquits themselves. That's the man he's talking to. It's not a man who he's talking to this individual. You see the you, the you is singular. Therefore you, not a y'all, that's not a y'all, that's a you. Therefore you have no excuse, oh man. There, he thinks he's got an excuse. His excuse is not, I don't have enough information. His excuse is, I am a participant. I am a religion. You condemn sin, I condemn sin. You condemn sinners, I condemn sinners. That's what I do. And he's saying to him, do you not know by what you have done, you have signed the papers of your own indictment? That's what you've done. And everyone like you, everyone who embraces this, all Man-made religionists, self-righteous. Every one of you have come under this condemnation. Because look what he says. You have no excuse, O man. Every one of you. This man's, he's dealing with one man, but he represents a whole group who, who do what? And he says, he gives you five things about this man. Now jot these five things down. Here are the five things he gives about this man. Number one, this man... This man puts himself in the position as a judge. Look at what he says. You who judge. You who judge. See what he says? He said, every one of you who judges. And what does he do? In passing judgment on, now watch, another. All of us, if you're a Christian, make judgments about behavior. Is this right or wrong? Is it sin or obedience? We're all called to make that judgment. But this man isn't making simply a judgment about about sin. He's making the judgment on sinners and put himself as the judge over sinners. Not just responsible judgment about behavior, is this sinful or not, but putting himself in a position, the only one who is to be there is the one assigned, the Lamb of God, but he puts himself there in judgment, not simply upon behavior, but upon others, and he condemns them. Secondly, he not only takes the position of judging others, he secondly condemns sin and sinners. He is one who in his judgment condemns others. They could, he make passes judgments on others. Again, not just their behavior, but upon them as if he knew their heart and as if he had the, had the right to do that, that he had the right to sit on that judgment throne. Number three, and I hear something else about him. This man who takes the position of a judge over others, this man who condemns others does, now note the language, the very same things as others do. Well, Harry, you mean the promiscuity and the perversity? Oh, you didn't, didn't you read that whole list? Gossip, 
slander, divisiveness, inventing evil. There's a whole list of the culture of insanity and absurdity. The religionist, man-made religionist, is a practitioner. He has a hidden life. Not the observed life, but a hidden life that practices the very same things that he publicly condemns when he condemns others. Fourthly, fourthly, here is a man who in the providence of God has not yet tasted the wrath of God. On the contrary, his life has been characterized by tasting of the common grace of God. Notice what he says. He says this, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, and knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, which God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What what he's saying is this. Not only do they take the position of judge over others, not only do they condemn others in their sin, thirdly, they practice the very things that they're condemning, and fourthly, They have not yet tasted the wrath of God today, although the wrath of God is to come on that day. And having not tasted the wrath of God, but the common grace of God, they now, they now have convinced themselves that there is no wrath of God. They've got an excuse. They've got a pass. They are an exception because of their self-righteous religion. But the fifth thing that it says about them is this. They have succumbed to sinful deceitfulness in their man-made religion. And it shows up four ways in the text. Here's how they have succumbed to the deceitfulness of sin. Four ways. First of all, Sinful, sinful hypocrisy. Sinful hypocrisy. You know, that's an interesting word. Hypocrite. Really interesting words. A guy, let me try to illustrate it this way. Again, no political statement here. Just an interesting illustration. um, Trying to show that um, I'm aware of the vocabulary around me. Um, I don't just live in the 19th century all the time. Uh, the um, uh, so all around us, what do I hear? Mask, mask, mask. What do you think about mask, mask, mask? And I say, well, it depends on what the mask is. I can tell you, a mask I hate that I ask God I'll never wear, and it's the one that Jesus exposes. You know, Jesus grew up with a carpenter, and he worked with him till at least he was age thirty, as we know. And I've often wondered, because four miles from Nazareth, I've been there. I've done the walk. Four miles from Nazareth, the, the Romans rebuilt a theater. It's a place called Sephora. And they reintroduced the Greek theater and Greek art and Greek drama. So Jesus would have been going over there. And I've often wondered if this influenced his choice of terms. 
I've stood in the amphitheater likely he worked on. Now, we don't know for sure, but very likely he worked on. I mean, there's 200 people living in Nazareth. You got work four miles away. My guess is you're going to take you and your boys and, and we're going to, we're going to get a, you know, the, the latest stimulus package. Uh, we're going to get some money from it. And they go to work over there. Do you know Greek drama? Very profound in its playwriting. But very inexpensive. You only need one actor. You just get an actor. And that actor is the one that does the whole play. Got six characters? That's okay. Just give him six masks. And he wears a mask as an actor every time he changes a part. So he turns around, puts the mask in front of him, and that he becomes that person. Puts a mask in front, and you know what they then are called, these actors who wear these masks. They are called hypocritas. People who are wearing a mask to appear as someone that they're not. So here are men in their religion appearing as those who hate sin and condemning sin and sinners while they practice the very same thing behind the mask of hypocrisy. I got another computer. I got another phone. I got another appointment book. I've got another life. You are without excuse. Don't fool yourself. God doesn't look the mask. He looks at the heart. Secondly, sinful, sinful hypocrisy. They've also engaged in sinful presumption. Did you read it? Oh, do you who condemn others presume that God will not judge you accordingly? Do you presume upon his kindness and his goodness? Do you presume upon that? Look at, look at what he says. He says, let me read it to you. He says, or do you, verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, in other words, you think because God has been kind. In other words, you have sinned. And as you have sinned, God's wrath has not yet come upon you. And because God's wrath has not come upon you and you sinned, then you're looking at it and says, hey, I got away with it. I've gotten away with it. All I've had God's grace and for uh, grace, uh, grace, uh, God's common grace and forbearance and God's patience. I, I've sinned and I'm still here. I'm sinned and I still own my house. I'm, I sinned and I'm, I still got my health. I, I've sinned and, 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 and I am now experiencing God's common grace of forbearance and patience. And he thinks he's gotten away with it. What he doesn't know is God's forbearance is not a message you got away with it. But I'm giving you time to confess it and to repent of it. And that time has a shelf life. The day when he judges rightly is coming. Thirdly, not only is there sinful presumption, but there's a sinful assumption. 
And the sinful assumption is this. Well, if I got away with it today, then on that day, I'll get away with it. If I'm not experiencing God's wrath now, and I've gotten away with it, then he now does a sinful assumption on that day. On that day, someday, he'll lose my file. Somehow I'll miss. I'll get mixed up in the crowd. I'll have an excuse. I'll be an exception. And a sinful assessment because I haven't been judged today that I won't be judged on that day. And then fourthly, the fourth thing is a sinful assessment. Since I haven't been judged now, then my self-righteousness and my religion will keep me from being accountable on that day. I'm an exception. I've got an excuse. I won't be accountable for my sins. But here's what you don't know, he says. God judges rightly. God judges rightly. And there is a day. But can I get you well, just to look back one more time? Or do you, do you um, um, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing? Folks, this is why Paul, Paul wants to tell you about salvation, but it won't make sense. Salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone until you understand condemnation and indictment. Do you not know? Do you not know? This is something you've got to know. And that's this. You will not escape the judgment of God because of your heart because of your heart and impenitent heart. See, we still got a heart. Back in, what was the pagan's problem? Darkness of heart. Here is the hardness of heart. And the hardness of heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath and righteous judgment. And it will be revealed. It absolutely will be revealed. You are storing up. He uses a banking term. It could be translated treasuring up judgment against yourself. You think you're getting away with it. Actually, it's not disappeared from the ledger. God is just giving you time to repent. This is the day of grace and salvation. But instead of seeing it as an opportunity to repent, you have sinfully assumed and sinfully presumed that you will get an excused pass. You are an exception. But that day, there's no exceptions. That day, God judges rightly. That day, everyone receives according to their deeds. Everyone. And therefore, you stand there underneath that judgment. You've made a wrong anticipation in the deceitfulness of sin. So what's the takeaway? I know where you are right now, by the way. You mean we're all going to be there? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. My sins will be under the wrath of God? Yep. Well, Harry, how can there be no condemnation? Hang with me. 
Just give me three minutes. The message is clear. There's no excuses that will be issued on the day of judgment. There are no exceptions from the wrath of God upon our sin. If you want to see what it's going to be like, go read Revelation 6. It says, on that day, the children of wrath will plead for the mountains to fall upon them rather than the Lamb and the wrath of the Lamb. I can't help but think of the Hebrews text. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? No exceptions. No excuses. You can't escape. They who refused him upon the earth, if they received that judgment, how much more will be the judgment of those who reject him when he speaks from heaven? He has spoken. Forget Harry Reader. Jesus has promised through preaching he'll speak to the hearts of his people. Will you reject him or come to him? There's no excuses. There's no exceptions. But we do have an exceptional message. It's not if you love Jesus and do enough good things in your religion, you get a pass. Here's what it is. The one who did not sin went to the cross. And the wrath to your sins, all of them. I mean, just think if there was some way we could attach that machine to my heart or your heart and up on these screens would come everything we thought, did, and said just the last two weeks. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. Nothing is hidden. We will give an account for every thought, word, and deed. But the exceptional message is, on that day, if you're in the book of life, because you have repented of your sins to come to Christ and trust Him alone, it's not that God gives you a pass. It's that Jesus paid it all. The wrath of God was satisfied. And in Jesus, the love of God is magnified. You don't get a pass. You don't, I'm I'm not being humorous on this. You don't get a, you don't have a get out of hell free card. You're redeemed. And a price was paid. Jesus Paid it all. All to him I owe. So I do not want to be deceived by sin. In my sin, all I need is more of it. Or in my man-made religion and the fake news that I can work my way into heaven by condemning others and having a hidden life where I do the same things I condemn. No, no. What I want to know is Jesus. 
I want to come to him. Folks, you can't listen. You're going to get there. You are going to the judgment seat. Do you understand? You're going to, I'm going to go there. And we only have one hope, and that is we're not written in the books, but we're written in the book of life with the blood of the Lamb. That's our only hope. Because those written there didn't get a pass, they got redeemed. Jesus paid the ransom for all of our sins, every single one of them. Now, Pastor, are you sure there's not another religion? I'm absolutely sure. Why do you not think there's another religion? It's been, is there, isn't there another way? I'm absolutely sure there's not another way. For many reasons. The Bible tells me so many reasons. But the biggest reason why, that's been asked and answered. It was asked in the garden where Jesus, bleeding blood because of what he's going to face in the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus says to the Father, is there any way this cup can pass from me? Is there another way? Answer, no. There's only one way. It is Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we come pleading our first, we got a first name relationship with Jesus. What's Jesus' name? Jesus. What does that mean? Yahweh saves. And that's our plea. Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my all. Let's pray. Father, I pray and ask that you would speak to the hearts of each of your people here to encourage them that they are forgiven, not through the fake news of man-made religion, but through the good news that Jesus has overcome our indictment and removed it by his blood so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and has read, and has given us another ticket and that ticket is to heaven because we are clothed with his righteousness. We are accepted in the beloved and we are forgiven because of his shed blood. Father, would you please give your people joy in the assurance of that good news salvation. No fake news of religion, but the, of man-made religion, but the good news of true religion, which is the good news that Jesus saves sinners from every one of their sins, not because you winked at it, but because he paid for it. And then Jesus, help us take that to the world. And then I want to ask if there's anyone here, they've come searching, they've come seeking, they've come asking today, God, they're on my heart Would you please let them not walk away from here this day and another callous laid down on a hardened heart. But would you make the heart soft to come to Jesus and call upon him. Jesus, be my savior. I put my hope not in Sin and its depths of depravity. I put my hope not in man-made religion by hypocritically judging others while practicing the very same things. I put my hope in Jesus, His blood and righteousness, my only dress. And I come to you, Jesus, for that new record 
that new heart and that new life. If you've never prayed with anyone or talked with anyone or want to talk with me, please do so. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. You're our Redeemer. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.